Hello and welcome to the Praise Center Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, visit PraiseCenterOnline.com. Does anyone here have anything that they obsess over, like, at all? I do. Uh, some people obsess over, like, TV shows or their appearance or movies or sports or their social life. Um, but my obsession is The Lord of the Rings. And uh, I, I love, I just love reading in general, but specifically the fantasy genre. And, uh, and if you've talked to me for any length of time, you know that, that I love The Lord of the Rings. I love everything that has to do with it, every book that Tolkien's ever written. I, I, I love it all. Um, there was even a, a coworker of mine uh, last month who uh, I was eating my lunch and I was reading Lord of the Rings on my lunch break because uh, I do that every year. And he's like, what are you reading? I said, oh, The Lord of the Rings. He's like, oh, is it your first time? I said, no. I read it every year. I've done it for like 10 years now. And, and he's like, every year? I said, yeah, it's great. He's like, but don't you already know what happens? It, it, it's not boring? I said, no, it's awesome. <laughs> Takes me about two months. I start in November and I read The Hobbit and all three Lord of the Rings books and I'm done by New Year's. It's great. It's my favorite time of year. Um, I saw, I saw this quote that, that really resonated with, with my heart. It said, uh, I was initially planning on being a casual fan, but then I thought, why not just let it consume my soul instead? <laughs> well, I haven't quite gone that far. My, my soul, thankfully, has not been consumed by something as worldly as, as a fantasy story. Um, but I've certainly crossed the line from casual fan into borderline fanatic. Um, but I just, I just really like it. It's really fun. And I think the cool thing about the, the whole fantasy genre is that no matter how many thousands of years go by in this fantasy world, everyone's just stuck in the same technology. And it's always the cool, uh, you know, swords and bow and arrows and battles where people have to fight hand to hand. I just really think that's, uh, that's a lot of fun to read about and, and watch on, uh, on TV or whatever. Um, but they, they get to not have the medieval level of healthcare and dying at 25 from the common cold and stuff like that. So it's really fun. Um, so in my love for fantasy fighting and styles, uh, I'm going to talk about the armor of God because armor is cool. Um, if you have your Bible, let's go ahead and turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. I'm sure many of you have heard this passage before, and maybe some of you haven't, and that's cool. Um, but it's one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible, um, which could be due in part to my love for epic battles and stuff like that. But I think it goes a lot deeper than that, and there's a lot of good things we can get from this passage. Um, so we're going to start in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, 
and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Are you ready? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for this opportunity that you've given me to share what you've put on my heart. I just pray that your Holy Spirit would, uh, would work into each of our hearts and minds, Lord, um, that we would hear what you want us to hear and, and uh, just learn what you want us to learn and that we would apply it to our lives, Lord God, and be, um, just be ready to hear from you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to just go one section of armor at a time. Uh, I think it'll be really fun. So the first thing Paul does here is he talks about why we need spiritual armor at all. Um, it's so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil uh, because our lives are not a, a fight against flesh and blood is what he says. So obviously there are wars and you know fights that take place in our, in our world and some people serve in that area of fighting against flesh and blood as it were. Um, but as Christians, that's not, that's not the important fight. Um, the true fight, that, as Paul says, is this fight against the cosmic powers over this present darkness or the spiritual forces of evil. Um, in fact, in 2 Corinthians 10.2, Paul says it this way, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. I like the way that the King James Version says this. It says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. We can't expect to pull down strongholds with carnal weapons. Now, I don't personally own one, but I'm all for the right to bear arms. However, there are some people out there, and, and if there's anyone in here who's like this, I'm not, I don't know about it, so I'm not targeting you specifically, but there are people who just stockpile weapons because they think someday... The government or some shadow organization or some foreign power is going to come and they're going to try to take us over. You don't want to go down without a fight. Hey, that's great, you know, whatever. But, but no amount of guns matters against the true enemy. You know, a, a handgun is not going to prevent the enemy from trying to steal from you. And a shotgun's not going to stop the enemy from trying to kill you. And a rifle is not going to hinder his attempts to destroy you. It's just plain and simple. So... How many spiritual weapons are you investing in? You know, how many, how's your stockpile of weapons that have divine power? So we're going to take up the armor of God and we're going to get stocked up. So the first piece of armor that Paul talks about is the belt of truth. Why is the belt of truth important? I don't think there's necessarily a deep significance to the order in which Paul talks about the armor, but I think there is a significance in what, why each piece of armor uh, is paired with the word that he gives it. Um, so for the belt of truth, uh, I think it seems pretty obvious to me um, what happens if you don't have a belt. Your pants fall off. Okay. Or in Bible times, you know, they were probably wearing like tunics and stuff, but it keeps your, your stuff from getting all tangled up in your feet, tripping you up, you fall on your face, and you die. Um, you know, because we're in battle at all times, right? If I'm not wearing a belt and I run into battle and I trip because my pants fall down, I'm just 
laying there on the ground, how long am I going to last? You know, I'm either going to get targeted and run through, or I'm just going to get trampled over and, and you're done, you know? You're no use to a battle if you're laying on your face. So, in your spiritual life, you know, what happens when you get caught up in a lie? You know, for starters, if you're lying, you're committing a sin, and, and sin is incompatible with God. But lies also damage the people around you. They break down trust, uh, which trust is not easy to build. I think when Paul is talking about the belt of truth, though, he's not really, you know, the, the important thing he's talking about isn't telling lies versus telling the truth. He is saying that the belt of truth is all about holding your spiritual pants up with the truth. Jesus, Jesus says this in John 8.31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then the people argue, well, we're not slaves, so how can we be set free? And then in verse 34, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And then again, if we skip down to verse 36, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed, which we just sang about. That was cool. I didn't know that they were doing that song. Um, And I think this is what Paul is talking about. He's talking about the truth, which is the gospel message. And it's the foundation for our whole salvation. As Jesus said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And in Romans 3.23, Paul says, all have sinned. So if, if we can say that all have sinned, then we can say that all are in slavery to sin, right? We as believers in God believe that it was God's intention to have a personal relationship with every single person, but through sin, we were separated from God. And his plan then, already knowing that we were going to sin, was that he would come to earth in the form of a human, and he would give up his life to pay our debt that we incurred by our sin and then to raise back to life by his own power to render death defeated. And I mean, I've heard that message hundreds of times, you know. If you think there's 52 weeks in a year and you come at least every Sunday, you've probably heard it a few hundred times if you've been in church for more than a couple years. So I, I think sometimes I just take that for granted. You know, I don't know about you, but if you take away nothing else from, from this message today, that's the most important thing, is just recognizing that that's the truth. You know, that is, that's what everything that we talk about, everything we do here, it's all based on that. If, if you haven't accepted what Jesus did by dying on the cross and then resurrecting, then you're still in slavery to sin. The truth is free for us, And the Bible says if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So that's why it's called the belt of truth. It's possessing this gospel message, this truth that keeps you from lying face down in the mud and getting trampled to death spiritually or, you know, by every jab and attack because you just don't know the truth in your heart. Okay, so moving on to the next piece of armor. Uh, the breastplate of righteousness. The word righteousness just means doing right by God. Luke chapter 1, in talking about Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist's parents, Elizabeth and Zechariah, um, verse 6 says, Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. So the observance of the spiritual law is synonymous with righteousness. 
And you can find this all over the Bible. In the Old Testament, uh, it says in Psalm 106.3, says, Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. And you'll also find it in the New Testament, uh, like in 2 Timothy 2.22. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. So it's pretty clear that when the Bible is talking about a righteous person or someone doing righteousness, it's referring to someone following the spiritual laws or commands of God. So again, I think there's a purpose to why each piece of armor is matched up with the word that, that Paul gives it. Um, so in this case, the breastplate is the guard for your body. Um, and so, so what is, what's like the most important part that's being guarded that's right in here, right? It's your heart, okay? So in uh, Proverbs 4.23, it says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. And another translation says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Which is pretty intense. Everything you do flows out of your heart. It's the spring of life. Uh, I'd say that that's a pretty important part of your life to protect then, right? If the heart is the source of everything in your life, where's the enemy going to strike? It's going to strike at your heart. Uh, and he has had thousands of years to perfect how to poison the heart and poison that spring so that everything that comes out of it is wrong. You know, it's not righteous. He's going to strike at your heart. And if he can get his hands on that, he doesn't have to worry about any other part of your life. It doesn't matter what you do. If he has your heart, then nothing good can come from it. You're no threat to him anymore. Keep in mind that unlike uh, physical warfare, the enemy's attack doesn't look like someone charging you with a flaming sword that he's trying to stab in your heart. You won't always recognize it that easily. Uh, like I said, he, he's, he's had a lot of time to think about how to do this the right way. He, he's devious. The original sin in the Garden of Eden um, was defying God's command to not eat the forbidden fruit. And it was, it was a moment of choosing not to be righteous that caused sin to enter the human DNA. It was the enemy whom the Bible says was craftier than all the wild creatures of the earth who deceived Adam and Eve into in setting aside their righteousness. And in the same way, he's, he's still crafty. He's, he's had thousands of years to figure out how to get at each and every one of us. And he'll just push a little thought here or a little idea there in an area of your life where you aren't really paying attention and, and then you just choose to set aside God's command and you sin and that's it. I mean, that, Suddenly your heart is stained and if you don't clean it up, you'll be poisoned and die spiritually apart from God. That's what God was talking about in the garden when he said, if you eat from the fruit, you will die. He's talking about the spiritual separation from Christ. So, absolute righteousness. Living as God intended for you is your defense for your heart. If you can live completely perfectly, the enemy has no way to touch your heart. That's great. Any, any problems with that? Anyone? Any questions, you know? King Solomon, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes, uh, he recognized that that's not realistic. 
in chapter 7, verse 20, he says, Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. He's very right in that. So it's all hopeless unless we can somehow have sin erased from our life. And we just talked about this with the belt of truth, right? Jesus came to earth and took our sins upon himself. So by accepting salvation, sin can be removed from our hearts. This is, again, why having the truth comes first. If you have the truth, you now have the ability to be righteous. He, God not only forgives you when you stumble in sin, um, but he also gives us the supernatural ability to pursue righteousness in a way that we, we couldn't do if, if we were on our own, if we were just trying in the flesh to just do everything that God wants us to do. We wouldn't be able to do it. It's, it's through relying on God that we are able to pursue righteousness and be righteous in the sight of God. You have the Holy Spirit inside your heart, which is a divine presence that lives in you when you accept salvation. And you can be righteous if you rely on that. So the next piece of armor is the shoes. It says to have your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace which is the message that Jesus preached, that he loved the world so much that he laid down his own life for each one of us to cleanse us from unrighteousness, to fit us with the truth, and to restore our relationship with him. So if that's the gospel of peace, then what's the readiness that comes from it? Well, lucky for us, Jesus gave a whole speech about what it means to be ready. Uh, in Matthew chapter 24, he and his disciples are talking about the architecture of the temple and Jesus starts explaining to them all these signs and what's going to happen to show us the end times and how we can recognize false Christs and things like that. But he goes on to say that um, while we may know the signs, we can never know the exact time or day. Um, and then so starting in verse 42 of chapter 24, Jesus says, Therefore, keep watch. Because you do not know on what day the Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And then he starts telling these parables about what it will be like for the people who aren't ready. Um, at first, it, it kind of sounds reasonable in my opinion in verses 48 through 51 he tells the story about the servant who's left in charge of his master's house while while he's gone um, the servant decides to use the time to get drunk and to party and to fight and it, he thinks he has plenty of time to set things right before the master returns well he was caught and uh, the master came before the servant expected him he gets caught he gets cut up and he gets tossed out of the house. And of course, this parable is just referring to any person who decides to live unrighteously and turns away from the Lord's good news. Notice that he started out as a servant to the master, but then he chose to turn away and do things against the master. Also, even though he, he knew, um, or even if he knew what day the master was coming back, he, he made this decision to do all these things that the master was going to find out about anyway, like you know, how many, how many other servants as he's beating them up are going to be like, man, if he cleans up before the master gets back, I won't tell him. Uh, it'll be fine. The master comes back and he says, hey, how'd it, how'd it go with the, the guy I left in charge? And the you know, bruised and bloody, they're like, oh, he was fine. He was great, you know. 
No, he, he, he's going to find out that this guy was not living the way he was supposed to and he was not taking good care of things. Um, so this is an example of someone who is in blatant defiance of God um, because they lost sight of the gospel or they just didn't want to live in it. Um, and so, like I said, in my opinion, it's fairly reasonable that someone who would willingly turn away from God would spend eternity apart from God. Um, however, Jesus then goes a step further in the next parable. I don't claim to understand the cultural context of ten virgins waiting for a bridegroom late at night for a wedding feast, but I always kind of just assume that that's like the bridesmaids and the Jews like to have really late night weddings. Um, I don't know, but fortunately the, the spiritual context still holds up uh, perfectly fine, I think. So there's ten virgins, and they're waiting on the bridegroom to arrive for a wedding feast. And they each have a lamp, but out of the ten, only five brought extra oil in case the groom took a really long time and the lamps burned out. All ten of them fall asleep before the groom arrives, and then when he finally does around midnight, they all get ready to go out and meet him, but the five that didn't bring extra oil have to rush out and try to buy more oil, and, uh, and by the time they get back, the, everyone's inside, the doors have been shut, they're, they're stuck outside. Uh, like I said before, I, I kind of get that the servant who was beating people up and doing things wrong um, would get thrown out, but now we have people who are being thrown out because they forgot oil for their lamps. Now that, can you blame them for falling asleep? He didn't show up till midnight. You know, like, and let me... Let me, let me make a side comment real quick about making your wedding guests wait. <laughs> I didn't go to anyone's wedding in this room except my own, so I'm not targeting you. So if you did this, let the Lord convict you. But The ceremony's over, and the preacher says, all right, we're going to have a reception. Everyone go to the reception. We're going to spend four hours taking pictures, and then we're going to eat. Don't do that, please. If you're single, just keep it in mind. Just take the pictures before. Do a first look or something. I don't care. Just, or just let your guests eat. It's free advice. I, my, my guess is like this, this groom showed up at midnight because back then uh, it took a really long time to paint a good wedding photo. And, you know, this, like, look, the wedding ended at 10 a.m., but here, we're going to paint a picture. We'll start the reception afterwards. I don't get it. My personal complaints aside, the spiritual context is pretty plain. Uh, all ten women knew that they were invited to the wedding feast if they just followed the one rule that they have their lamps ready to go. In the same way, we all know that Christ is going to come and if we don't want to get left out in the dark, all we have to do is keep ourselves ready. We hold on to the gospel as our link to him. That is the readiness. Have your shoes on. You're ready to go as soon as he says, hey, we're going now. If you don't have your shoes on, you're done. In addition to this, take up the shield of faith. Hebrews 11 gives us this excellent list of faithful people in the Old Testament and what their faith looked like. Verse 1 says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Confidence and assurance for things that have no guarantee. Of course, any of us who have had a personal experience with God 
we know that he's real. We know that he's going to keep his promises. So even though we don't see, we're assured. And even though we live in only the hope of eternity, we have confidence about it. In the context of the armor, this is the only one that um, specifies the function of it. It says it's to extinguish the flaming arrows of the enemy. Um, it's faith that prevents the attacks of the enemy from being able to stick into you at all. When I think of the flaming arrows, I usually think of like the subtle but very targeted attacks. Um, little thoughts like, what's the point? Or God could never love someone like you. Or even smaller thoughts that don't even really seem like attacks necessarily. Like, you aren't a good enough Christian to pray for other people. There are other people whose job it is to lead spiritually. You're not supposed to be doing that. You're not one of those people. But faith is the recognition that God came to the earth and died for you as much as for anyone else. Okay? I, I would be so bold as to say that if Christ came, did everything he did, died for the salvation of mankind, and not a single person on earth accepted that salvation except for you, he still would have done it. For you. Don't sell yourself short. He has amazing plans for you. But if you allow yourself to have just small faith, the little arrows of the enemy that he shoots at you, they'll, they'll be able to destroy you. Um, and maybe they won't destroy you, but they'll be able to slow you down. They'll prevent you from being as influential as God has intended you to be. I recognize this in my own life. Um, I think that the attack that used to get me hung up the most is, oh, you don't have time for that. I think a lot of people struggle with that. Who, who, who among us thinks that, yeah, 24 hours, that's the perfect amount of time for a day. <laughs> I'm guessing maybe one or two at most are completely content with the amount of time that they have in their day. You know, you would, you would never need another hour of sleep or another hour to do whatever. Um, but for me, if you had told me five years ago that I'd be co-leading a youth discipleship group, singing backup vocals once a month, uh, preaching sermons every few months like this, um, reading theological and spiritual books and, and actually trying to learn how to apply them to my life, doing Rooted, going to prayer at 6.30 on a Monday morning, and working a 40-hour week job, I wouldn't have believed you. Or at least I would have assumed that if that were the case, that would have been all-consuming and I would have no time to read my own books, hang out with my own friends, and do my own thing. Well, here I am, doing all these things now. I still read my books. I still hang out with my friends. I still do plenty of things in my free time. I still waste a lot of time. You know, there, there's a lot of things I do that are of no benefit whatsoever, and I'm still able to do them. So what happened? I didn't, I didn't gain more time in my day. I just allowed myself to be used by God. And I rely on him to make sure that I don't get burned out doing these things. I had to step out in faith that he would take care of me, and that's exactly what he does. So take up your shield of faith. Have confidence in the hope for the next life, and be assured of what you cannot see. God is going to take care of you. It's 
the weak faith that keeps people from doing great things for the kingdom. As with every other piece of armor so far, we don't have the ability to have supernatural faith without a supernatural source. In John 3.3, Jesus says, No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. To be born again is, as I've been coming back to all morning, the gospel message. Jesus came to earth, and in sacrificing himself, brought those who choose him into a new life. We're born into the spiritual kingdom where before we were dead in it. That's how we're able to have faith in the unseen because the spirit of God is alive inside of us. Speaking of going from death to life, the next part of the armor is the helmet of salvation. The helmet is a pretty important piece of armor. Yeah? No? But why is it The helmet of salvation. I think that's pretty obvious, so this will probably be the shortest point. Um, If you don't have a head, you're not very useful in war. If your spiritual head gets caved in, you aren't going to be any use in spiritual war either. Salvation is the deliverance from that which would destroy you. That's how it's defined. It's being saved from your sins. John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. If you haven't caught on yet, this piece of armor is also centered around the gospel message, just like all the rest. It's only through Christ that we can be saved. Believe in him, and he will keep your head from getting crushed. Uh, Let's have the worship team come on back up as I kind of get ready to close out here. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We finally covered all the defensive pieces of armor. So what are you going to do? Run out into battle and just stand there and take all the hits? No way to fight back? No. You need something to fight back with. So the word of God is your weapon. In fact, it's likened to a sword in more places than just Ephesians. In Revelation 19.15, talking about Jesus... It says, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. John, who is the writer of Revelation, in his vision of the end time, literally saw a sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. What else could we say comes out of a mouth? Words. So the word of God is coming out of Jesus' mouth, and it is a sword. That's, it, that's how clear it is of that's how we should regard the Bible. It's a weapon. It's what cuts the head off the enemy. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I'd say a living weapon is pretty effective, wouldn't you? It's in using the word that the enemy is overthrown. The word is what teaches us the truth. It's what teaches us righteousness. It's what teaches us how to be ready. Uh, It's what teaches us faith, teaches us salvation. The only reason we know anything about the armor to begin with is because the word of God was written down by Paul in a letter to the Ephesians nearly 2,000 years ago. Don't sleep on the sword. That's, That's an important piece. The word may be sharper than any physical sword, but you still need to know how to swing it to be useful. 
right? Owning a Bible is not what Paul is talking about in taking up the sword of the Spirit. Being here on Sunday is like a lesson in swordsmanship. You'll certainly be able to better fend off attacks uh, if you train for about an hour a week like we are here. But I doubt that you'll be much more use than just being able to swing it and kind of keep yourself from getting hit. Like, you're not going to be able to go on the offensive if you're only practicing an hour a week. It takes a practiced and disciplined swordsman or woman to be able to overcome a foe in a sword fight whose sole desire is to destroy you. You have to know how to attack. I'm sure the enemy would be quite content to just have the whole army of God be a bunch of lazy people with a sword and some armor who do nothing but just fend him off when he attacks us. I mean, sure, he can't, he can't destroy us then if, we, if we're living like that, but he can destroy everyone else who we're not defending. He can, he can go, there's billions of people all over the world. He doesn't need to attack us. He will. He'll, he'll try to look for a little hole in your armor once in a while, but honestly, if you're not doing anything to like further the kingdom of God, he doesn't have to worry about you. He's not worried at all. It, as Americans, we have a, a military that is very strong, and that's great and all, and we're no strangers to stepping in when a government is oppressing other people or, um, or just, you know, terrorism's going on, stuff like that. Whether you agree with the, the means or the motives of how we do that, the point is we know in the world that we can't just let evil things happen. We can't just sit back and be like, oh, they're not attacking us directly. Let's just let them take care of themselves. So if you claim to be a Christian, you are a part of God's military. Why do you think we've been talking about being armed for war all morning? Does this make sense? You're part of the military. You might want to pull your feet back a bit because I might step on some toes. But if you're hearing what I'm saying, uh, you might have a bit of an argument rising up inside of you. Like, I'm not, I, I'm, I don't have to be in this war mode all the time. You know, something like that. Um, but hey, if you're, if you're, if you got an argument or you got a question and, you know, if you're, if you're feeling challenged as a believer, that's great. You know, if you, if you never feel like something is challenging you, then you're probably not listening enough. You know, you don't get to decide who gets to be a good Christian and, and who's a bad one just because you're the one with a mic, Brent. Which is true, but I'm not the one who's saying this. In Matthew 16, 24, the word says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? And then just before Jesus ascended back into heaven and left the earth, he charged his followers to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. There was never supposed to be this distinction between a casual Christian and a full-on disciple. They're meant to be the same thing. 
So let's talk about discipleship real quick for a second. For starters, I don't think it's a coincidence that the word disciple and discipline are almost the same. You've got to have discipline to be a disciple. It's not for the faint of heart, honestly. To be a disciple is to raise up more disciples. It is to deny yourself and let your human nature be put to death in favor of allowing your spiritual life to begin in the here and now. What a disciple is not is a casual believer. Someone who says they have accepted Christ into their heart but has made no effort to acknowledge his lordship or follow his commands. That doesn't fit the definition. Now, I'm not telling you to be afraid for your salvation. That's not what I'm, that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to use what little skill I have with this sword to say, look, there are people all over the world who are being attacked and oppressed by the enemy, and we are called to make them into disciples. If God himself is commanding us, if him commanding us to do this isn't a big enough of a motivator, why not just the simple fact that people are suffering? And I'm preaching to myself as much as I am to anyone else uh, because I am very self-centered and comfort-centered. And the enemy probably loves how many people in my life I haven't tried to make a disciple. That I've, I've made no effort to bring them into the body of Christ. So I think it's time that we took some action. Time to get our armor on. Start training with your sword. And we go on the offensive. Make the enemy fear the church instead of laugh at us for, for, for just sitting around as the world just gets darker and darker. We all have to start somewhere. So I'm not telling you to, to stop watching football or, or stop going hunting or playing video games or using social media, whatever it is. But if you're not moving forward, how are you going to gain any ground? If you aren't investing your time, how are you going to get a return on your investment? If you aren't making disciples, how are you being a disciple? So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to open up the altar up here at the front for anyone to come up and just, uh, you know, whatever stage of discipleship you're in, feel free to come forward. Um, I think the physical act of moving forward out of your seat is this perfect representation of moving forward in combat and taking ground. As a platoon or a battalion or whatever terminology you want to use, we've got to take ground for God. If you feel overwhelmed by these expectations or that they're way unrealistic, I totally agree. As human beings, these are impossible things for us to do on our own. As spiritual beings, they are possible through the Spirit living inside of us. So ask Him to help you. The very last passage, uh, or verse of the passage I went over today, um, says, pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Supplication is defined as begging for something earnestly. Use this time while the band plays to earnestly beg God to give you strength or encouragement or forgiveness. Whatever it is you need, to get into this, this war gear, go after it. So we're just going to worship and, again, come forward. We have to move forward to take ground. So do that right now in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to Praise Center Sermon of the Week. 
Don't forget, for more information, visit PraiseCenterOnline.com.